0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is the 17th of the 11th. Michael, how have you been? I've been tolerable, Gary. Tolerable. And yourself? I've been pretty good. So, a couple of things to go through quickly. Uh, firstly, we want to open with just a short mention of a Gosh's failure to open the YK Power Station online. Hopefully that will be coming online shortly, but we just want to mention some of the issues they have. Then we want to touch briefly on the Kinzen story, hopefully for the last time. I'm certainly getting tired of uh, talking about it, but it turns out I've been the only person writing about it. So we want to discuss not Kinson itself, but how odd it is that the entirety of the Kinzen situation, including this new part of the situation where TDs have reached out and called for Stephen Donnelly to go into the doll, has received absolutely no reporting anywhere else in the country. Then we are going to go on to a new bill that's being proposed by Labour. They just came out and announced it, but it looks identical to one they brought up in March of this year, that says that um, products are going to have to have their carbon footprint on their labels. And it is broad and it is pretty redi- crazy. And I don't think it's it's actually practical workable. Whatever about the idea of it, when we get to it, we'll talk about what Labour wants exactly, and it is way out there. And then we can finally get back to a topic that we've talked about a lot, but not recently. The hate speech bill. The hate speech bill is going forward to the Joint Oroctus Committee on Justice tomorrow. A couple of the comments that are going to be made at it by some of the NGO groups that are going to be attending have been reported in The Times. They are way out there. They're certainly not civil liberties friendly, Michael, so we want to run through that. But just to start us off with, let's just go to the the story about Whitegate and we'll go from there. Bordgosh has failed to get the Whitegate power station back online. It was meant to be online in June, then it was meant to be back online on November the 4th, then November the 15th, then November the 16th, then November the 17th, and I'm now told November the 19th. I assume because they keep telling me it's moved forward a day at a time that they're getting close.
1: Well, they had been, and now they're getting farther away, because it had been one day, now it's two. But I'm sure it'll be up and running in time for the winter festivals.
0: Yeah, but you think by like the fourth day uh, a journalist comes back to you, you just kind of go, listen, it's not coming back online today. So that, that power station had been meant to come back originally in January 2022 but they moved it back there was a lot of rigmarole about why they'd moved it back but anyway they said they were going to be able to get it up earlier it coming back is a big part of the plans that were put in place to ensure there wouldn't be blackouts now hopefully we're only looking at some sort of small rolling delay and they will actually be back on Friday because it's good for everyone if it's back on Friday, but
1: then again, it should have been back on Monday. You're in awful hurry always, hurry, hurry, hurry. Should be back. Should be back. Oh, ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. ho! Why haven't they got the electricity back on? Yeah, Jesus. It should be grand. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Give yourself a. Give yourself an ulcer going on like that, You don't want one, I'm sure. So yes,
0: hopefully that will be back soon, uh, if only so that I can stop sending bored gosh daily emails going, where is the power plant? When is the power plant coming back online? My wife, she keeps asking me about the power
1: plant. <laughs> where is the power plant, buddy? I want the power plant. <laughs> yes, that kind of thing.
0: I was writing about it today, and you know when you write something, Michael, and you look at it and you go, no, that's unkind. So I was writing up this little news piece, and we didn't want to be too... Uh, mean-spirited about it because you know they're happy to respond to us every day and also it might come back tomorrow and if you're really mean then you look like you were you know uh wrong but i had written whitegate power station was certified as the most efficient power station in the country until it stopped working and then i went no that's unkind i'll finesse that but i mean by certain metric, michael it's never been more or less efficient, because they can't turn it on. So there's zero waste.
1: Yeah, but if you if you were to regard that the correct use of something in its final end is to do what it is designed to do, then it's not really doing any of that.
0: Yeah, but by like we take that as the metric. Michael Ireland is barely a country. That's a dangerous principle to adopt. The aim of something is to do what it's meant to do, and that's the measurement of success that'll lead to chaos in this country.
1: I wonder, wonder on that basis, what are politicians meant to do? What's the final end of a politician?
0: I mean, the final end of a politician is the same as the final end for all of us, Michael.
1: Well, that's true. Unless they've found out something that we haven't, or sold their souls to various demons and devils.
0: Hopefully for the last time, let's discuss the Kinson story. I'm getting, I, I, I know I'm the person writing all these stories, Michael, but even I am tired of talking about them. But it turns out that I'm the only person writing about them. So for, for those who, who have missed all of this, Kinsen is a media startup. It's involved with some heavies, uh, former heavies in Irish journalism. It was brought in by the Department of Health to do, basically, analysis of misinformation trends in Ireland. That was involved with a HSE project to report content to social media companies for that content to be removed and for possibly those accounts to be removed as well. GRIPT revealed that program had gone way over the limit and was reporting stuff like um, reports from Reuters, The New York Times... They were reporting a piece by, I think, an assistant editor of the British Medical Journal as constituting dangerous misinformation. They had reported a video, an unedited video, of uh, Senator Jared Crowell speaking in the shanid. Like, they were going wild. And we reported it, and then Kinson's relationship with the department ended within a week of that uh, being reported. And since then, we've reported more and more things about them. Kinson asked the Department of Health to ensure that a journal article which was being published and which the department had told Kinsen uh, Kinsen had been discussed in at the interview that went into the article, Kinzen asked the department to ensure that they didn't turn up in the article. And the Department of Health went to the journal and, as they say, briefed them on that.
1: They had a friendly word.
0: Yeah, so you had the state funding a... Uh, effectively, a surveillance program. The first time the state, by the way, has ever paid for this kind of work, according to the Business Post. So you had the state doing that. There appears to have been no oversight over it. Stephen Donnelly admitted it had been conducted outside of the normal tendering processes for reasons that have never been explained. Kinsan got about a hundred and ten thousand for nine months of work, and Michael, looking at the work done, you and I could have done it there. Are, if it was if. If if they had asked a PR firm, it would have been given to the interns. And they
1: probably would have done a better job, to be honest. But I suppose the problem, Gary, is that it hasn't become a thing. It's a story. It's an interesting story. It's a weird story. It has all sorts of little meta stories behind it. Like the fact that there was a discussion, you know, how should we deal with the issue? Should we go directly to the journal or should you maybe speak to them on how we manage keeping our name out of that, the fact that the name was apparently kept out of that story. There are all these things which make it a a reasonable and interesting story. The the nature and the quality of the product that was produced, which my understanding is that we are assured that this was done with human oversight. It wasn't just some kind of crude algorithm which was generated to throw a net out over the stuff floating in the ether dragged in a random set of things and threw them on the desk of the minister but rather it was curated and checked and yet when you look at what came out as being false or disinformation and on the other hand, stuff that wasn't considered false or disinformation. Stories that were about stories, but when the stories that they were about weren't reported, but the stories that were commenting on the stories were reported. It, it all, it's all very odd. I mean, there were some fairly, to go back over, slightly over, Gary, you can re- maybe remind the listener that there were some fairly substantial and reputable media sources that landed in in the catch of disinformation. I, you had the Washington Post, New York Times, Politico, the Lancet. Was the Lancet one of them? If it wasn't the Lancet, it was it was the British Journal of Medicine. It, it was one of the very heavyweight, very serious medical journals. So all of this is going on. It's interesting, and yet the, nobody else seems to be talking about it. Yeah,
0: and I I thought it was quite interesting because multiple people involved in journalism have either discussed the story with people in gripped or have discussed the story with people who Gript knows who have subsequently told us that the story is a matter of discussion it the story has been widely read in government in the department in the media it has gotten an exceptional amount of reads i haven't looked at the metrics myself but i think john said uh on twitter there that it got at least fifty thousand reads in ireland over the weekend that the last story was put up and we've put up seven or eight stories on this, Michael, I think I have. So only the last one. Now, the last one, we just published all of the work that Kinsen did for the department. I think of the documents we got, the only document we didn't discuss publicly was a email thread which showed Kinsen talking about the, um, the program to have social media material taken down. So Kinsen seemed to have been aware of that program and involved in it actively. But other than that, we, we've published all of these things and yet no one else has reported on it. And then today, the Rural Independence Group mm-hmm. sent out a press release talking about it because some of the TDs in the Rural Independence Group were named in the uh, the work that we had published in the full disinformation digests. So they sent out a press release saying that they wanted Stephen Donnelly to come before the doll. And explain how this sort of surveillance program was justifiable, why it had been done outside of the normal tendering process, and why it seemed that they were that Kinzen were also collecting not just misinformation, but anything that ran contrary to the government's position. And no one picked up that PR. Gript published a story and I put together a story for in the evening, but I deliberately waited to see if anyone else would pick this up. And no one touched it. So we have a story which is massively popular, which people in the department, people in the government, people in journalism have read and are aware of. And we now have a group of TDs calling for the Minister of Health to come before the doll to explain what the hell is happening here and how it happened. And no one has reported
1: any of it. It's a bit of a dog not barking in the middle of the night job, isn't it?
0: I mean, when when I was doing the work, I never really considered the Kinzen programme a surveillance programme. I considered it just, it's the sort of analysis I've seen companies do routinely. But from talking to people, I think you can make an argument that it's different when the state does it, and it may actually be justifiable to call it a surveillance programme. In which case, it's the first time the state has ever paid a third party to conduct a surveillance program, and that surveillance program captured information about a great deal of political speech, some of which was used. So, one of the things, for instance, in the um, that the HSE sought to take down, were posters promoting anti-lockdown protests, where those posters contained no claims about COVID-19, no claims about the vaccine, about COVID-19, they were purely anti-lockdown things, which was to say they were against the government policy. And the HSE still sought to have those removed. So you're going into explicitly political rather than medical issues. It's just sort of odd that it's not being talked about.
1: I suppose they would argue that in a situation like this, the distinction between a political and a medical issue, what you're talking about Public policy on the basis of medical advice is a kind of a fine distinction to make. But I think it's a distinction that in fairness you have to make because they weren't making claims regarding the vaccine, either its effectiveness or its safety. They weren't making any claims about the nature of COVID, its reality or otherwise. They were just making... They were opposed to the the policy choices the government had made as, in response to the, to the pandemic. And considering the fact that There were plenty. There were other governments, who were making different policy choices, and other expert groups, recommending different avenues to the management of the pandemic. Opposition to the government is a perfectly reasonable thing. To, well, it's not just reasonable. It's something you would expect to occur in a democracy. You'd You'd start to become not just worried, but rather suspicious. If you had almost unanimity without throughout the population regarding the government's approach to the management of any issue, so the idea that you're going to close people down simply because they were protesting against a a a policy initiative or a policy approach to managing what is a very very serious very present problem within the society is is kind of is it worrying it's it's problematic anyway. I think there were two
0: two main things that came out to me. One was stuff like the anti-lockdown protest. At the time you were trying to get that taken offline, there are no medical claims in it. It cannot in and of itself be misinformation. Something that's misinformation may be said at the event. Sure. But you don't know that. You are removing objectively political speech that has no medical content. That, I thought, was a clear crossing of the line. That was a department trying to do something political. The second thing that immediately, that I immediately thought when I read them, and it kind of highlighted the dangers of this kind of work, was one of the reasons they were flagging all of those reputable publications because, was because those publications were publishing stories on the early warning signs that there might be a link between AstraZeneca and blood clots. And the HSE tried to get that material taken offline because it was the position of the HSE that that was not the case. But subsequently, it turns out that it can be a very rare side effect. So in that case, it seems like the HSE acted in a way directly contrary to public health and sought to have legitimate information removed because it it was not the policy of the HSE that the information was correct.
1: Yeah. Is it not also another example of what we have talked, more generally about uh, one of the failings of the approach here, which has been a reluctance on behalf of the government and the authorities to simply to be completely open and honest and transparent with the population and to try and engage with the people as partners in the pandemic by telling, okay, this is what the situation is, telling them the truth insofar as they knew what the truth was. And let's face it, nobody, uh, you'd have, you can't be unfair and expect that they're not going to make mistakes and maybe continuing mistakes, but mistakes that will be made in good faith based on the information that was current and available to them, the best information that they had. That may The stuff that turned out later maybe not to be quite what they thought. But there does seem to have been a time, a a reluctance to treat the people uh, in a completely adult way and to take them on board, I have felt it. Always that that was a failure, also as a failure of effectiveness, because if you make people feel that they are involved in the process themselves, I think you're more likely to get long- term engagement at a broader level, but also you're now going to face the problem that we have right now, which is how do you get off the merry-go-round how do you, How do we get off this carousel? They've established the narrative very very well, in fact too well. there's been a lack of balance in this story. And now there's uh, an incapacity, which we talked about before, we won't go into it again, to decide how do we exit this? And we're now looking into another lockdown, or if, we won't call it that, but new restrictions, the reimposition of of restrictions, which were only lifted a month ago, and a lack of clarity on how we're going to move forward. And a lack of clarity within the experts themselves, because there's a lack of clarity about what it is, that we have to achieve before we have before we move on to the next level or return to normality. There there are voices out there, Gary, which seem to be sceptical about the very notion that we can ever return to normality. At times, but uh, anyway,
0: I, I I don't want to review all of the kins and material because we've talked about it before, and frankly, I think we've talked about it enough. But again, this is a story involving a great deal of money, something which is openly said to be outside the tendering process. There's a lot of stuff here that I think makes a good story. And from what I've heard from other journalists, either directly or indirectly, is considered to be a good story. But yet, it's not touched upon. And I wanted to just briefly... Well, there's two things I wanted to do. One is to ask a very simple question of... um, Given all of that, all all the things we've talked about, even if you think this program was justifiable, the absence of any reporting on it, particularly now that we've released the full Kins and Digests, and there are parliamentary questions that were put in by Carol Nolan, that's all publicly available material that we've referenced. Yeah. And there is still absolutely no reporting on it. I think it's clearly, there's a public interest in reporting this material but it's very clear that no one else has any interest to do so. And I will go into why I think that is. But I think the the immediate question I would put to the listener is, if everything involving Kinzen is so utterly unimportant to these people that they won't report it, what else are they not reporting that they're aware of? I mean, where is the bar that will make them decide, you know what, maybe that's justifiable, but people should at least be told it's happening. Like, it seems to me, if you're willing to ignore this you're likely willing to ignore a great deal of other stuff in the same space.
1: That would be the concern, you would say, I suppose, yes.
0: As to why I think it's happening, I think there are three major reasons. The first of which is that the material came from GRIPT. And to report it would be to report that GRIPT had been the people who found it out. And we don't have a very warm relationship with most of the journalistic outlets in this country. We're not well-liked. Actually, I think that's part of why some of the stuff we do is quite good, particularly on areas like this, because we're not friends with these people, so it doesn't bother us if they dislike us for saying something. But I think that is, is, is a significant portion of it. I think the second reason is the people involved. Kinzen has Mark Little and Anne Care in it, both journalistic heavyweights in Ireland. Both people who are very involved in the sector. I mean, Mark Little sits on the future of media commission. These are people who turn up regularly as judges and award shows. They are people with connections. They are people you want to remain friendly with if you're in journalism. So if you know these people, if you're friends with them, if it's beneficial to you professionally to stay on their good side, it all kind of moves you in the direction of not reporting anything that might be deeply embarrassing to them or harmful to their company. And I think the third one, And this, I think, is something, Michael, even I myself had nearly forgotten, is that the media has accepted massive amounts of money from the state, all through COVID, because let's remember, during COVID, there was a real concern about advertisements. I talked to several people involved with radio stations who openly said funding from the government was the only thing keeping their doors open for a while. And most of that funding came from the HSE or the Department of Health. And this story is embarrassing to both of those entities. So we have a story that comes from people they don't like, relates to people that they do like, and are also people they are incentivized to keep on good terms with, and is embarrassing to people who've been giving them a great deal of money. And I think that altogether explains why this has not been covered, and is highly likely not to be covered if it keeps going on, or more TDs get involved, or anything like that happens, until it reaches such a point that it has to be covered. And it's very unlikely to reach that point. The story will most likely die relatively shortly, unless something major happens with it. At which point, the general public just will have no idea it ever happened.
1: Well, there you go. Who knows? Maybe as we speak, half a dozen feature writers for the Sunday newspapers are busily working its way at two and a half thousand words on the scandal that was Kinzen. I don't think so, but we should, in fact, do not someday. It
0: doesn't really build confidence in our, in our media, Michael.
1: Yeah, because we have so much confidence in our media. Yeah, but like, it, it kind of reminds me of the ISAG
0: stuff. Like, you work on the assumption that, okay, the media isn't going to do the work itself, but if you do the work for them and you give these people the means to verify it, they will eventually publish something. And like the ISAG stuff, when I broke those um, records, I gave ISAG material, the, 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 the raw ISAG material, only sections of it, because I wasn't going to give them everything until I saw what they were going to do, to senior correspondents in major mainstream media outlets. And they thought there was a story there. They wrote it up, they kicked it upstairs, and nothing ever got published.
1: Yeah, we know at least three senior people who had never had any problem having columns published before having co- uh, worked just spiked as in not, articles not published without explanation because they touched on the ice and
0: I mean, my favourite one, and I can't go into who this was with or how it happened, but I had someone approach one of the very premier news entities and the news groups in this country, Michael. I won't say if that's a person or a, a group or a show or whatever and give them a memo from an ISAG meeting. And I didn't approach them. I had an intermediary go to them, someone that they would have known and would be familiar with and presumably would be comfortable with. And that intermediary came back, said he had given them the memo, and the response they had given him was that the memo constituted harmless personal conversation. Okay. And I just, at that point, just say, fuck off, like... A memo. Harmless personal conversation. Yeah, I I must admit, Michael, occasionally I feel small twinges of hope. And that just makes the disappointment so much worse.
1: Let it go. Let the water just flow over you and accept it. You'll find it's much easier in the end. So before we run through what the NGOs
0: are going to say about the hate speech bill, I wanted to briefly mention something that Labour are doing. Because it has been a good while since I've heard an announcement and had such an immediate. It's not even that they're wrong. It's just so obviously either awful or not going to work that it just shocked me they'd even try. So what What Labour have done, and this is also going to go to the doll today I believe. Labour are, Labor are bringing forward a bill. Now, I believe it's a bill that Duncan Smith brought forward in March of this year. And what it's going to do is it's going to require all of the products show, uh, sold in this country to have on their labelling the carbon footprint that that product is responsible for. Now, looking at the bill that was put forward by Smith... Here is what the carbon footprint is to include. So the carbon footprint means a description of the commodity by reference to the quantity of greenhouse gases admitted in a the process of manufacturing the commodity including the extraction of raw materials, b shipping the commodity to the point of sale or delivery to the purchaser, c the normal use of the commodity as intended by its manufacturer, and d the end of life disposal of the commodity. I'm going to make two points here and we'll just kind of discuss them, Michael. If you are an SME and you are involved in any sort of production of anything that will involve a label, how exactly, or how technical and expensive is it going to be for you to work that out? Like the process of manufacturing the commodity, including the extraction of raw materials, that strikes me as something that in some cases will be very easy and in other cases is going to be simply beyond the reach of a small company. I mean, that is, in certain cases, that is going to be detailed, high-level research that I just don't think an SME is going to be able to afford, even assuming they could figure out how to do it and who they would contact. And then the second section, every label will have to include the greenhouse gas emitted in shipping the commodity to the point of sale if I am a large manufacturer and I deliver to, let's say, a hundred shops, does that mean every one of those will have to have a different label? And if that's the case, I mean, what happens if I mix one of the labels up? If that has massive implications for, for distribution. When Labour talked about it, they said we understand it may be difficult for some companies to to get this information. And they may understand that, but I very much doubt they understand exactly how difficult it will be in certain cases.
1: I don't understand this, unless this is an awful lot simpler than on the face of it it seems to be, then I, 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 I don't understand this. It's, it's, what it is, is it's a variation on a theme. A theme which has been very popular for a while, which is labelling. We have become obsessed with the idea that everything has to be written on every product that we buy that of could possibly of interest or 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 no interest to the consumer now the last this is the this is falls into this category of you know the way menus are going to have or i did have we passed that i think did we pass that that every menu would have to contain a breakdown of the nutritional and the calorific uh qualities of each each dish on the menu so that people would be would would have the kind of nutritional information that would be useful to them in order to live happy and healthy lives
0: it's also going to make it fantastically easier for those with eating disorders to indulge
1: their eating disorder <laughs> it will it'll be fantastically easy if you're McDonald's or Burger King and you're dealing with a completely well fairly uniform and set menu across a vast number of restaurants and with obviously the a, a vast basis anyway and uh, the kind of cost that for them it will be absolutely minimal but if you happen to be a small restaurant which is doing what you're supposed to do we're told these days which is respond to the seasonality of produce look to local pro- local producers rather than importing stuff uh, for them to be able to go through the kind of the detailed nutritional analysis uh that would be required and then every time they change the menu it would would be very problematic and expensive indeed but it's it's that kind of thing and it has exactly the same kind of problems for large i'm sure that large companies very large companies will be very happy with this kind of thing because large companies are always happy with government regulation because generally speaking they tend to be operating within the tolerances of that kind of regulation anyway and therefore it's not really a uh, an extra cost to them, and to the extent that it is an extra cost, when you look at the total volume of what they're doing, the actual extra cost that they have to pass on to the consumer and each individual item breaks down to be very small indeed. But they like it because, of course, it imposes much more onerous costs on their smaller competitors. And this is true, say, things like Even Love.
0: I think the, the, the best example of that, the, the we've ever seen at least in the modern world is tobacco tobacco companies where the decision was made to punish tobacco companies for all of the uh should we say lies by putting in place so rigorous a regime that no new competition would ever come into the market thereby safeguarding the market of the people you hated
1: oh absolutely you absolutely you, you 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 copper fastened the market where it was. Nobody ever knew it was ever going to be able to come into that market because of the costs that were that were that were there already.
0: But it's it's interesting that you mentioned nutritional um, information because when they brought this forward first in March, one of the things that Smith said was that um, he wanted it to be the environmental um, version of giving people a nutritional labelling. They said that. Research suggests that nutritional labeling reduces consumer intakes of calories by almost 7% and this is a clear opportunity to help people to do the same with their carbon footprint.
1: Mm, I'd like to see his research because I've looked at, I've looked at all that research and I can tell you, Carrie, it's very, very touch and go, anything like this when you to the extent that you, you see a change, where there has been a, any kind of a persistence change, you're talking about fractions cat a dozen calories here or there it really I, I I'm he may be aware of some good or even better newer research that's been done' which I'd be happy to look at but uh, when I went t- to do some work on syntaxes and particularly on sugar taxes that kind of thing the the research was very skeptical about this, but yeah, sorry just on this Say you sell a sandwich. I mean, I I try to understand this and I try, I'm not try, I try to be fair. If you say your business is making sandwiches, right? Now you're not going to be the producer of the vast majority of the things that go into your sandwiches. You make a salad sandwich. In you know that salad sandwich, you have your eggs, you have cucumbers, you've um, you have lettuce, you have tomatoes, you have mayonnaise. So from each of those things, you're going to have to get the carbon footprint of the eggs from whoever the person is from who you buy your eggs. So you buy your eggs from a woman up the hill who has a hundred and fifty chickens that she keeps in her organic free range field behind their house. Who's going to who's going to work out the carbon footprint for that? Is she going to have to do that? Would she would the supplier be responsible? ...for working out the carbon footprint of that.
0: So I I suppose one of the problems here... ...we are talking about this before it goes to the Dáil... ...there was the previous bill in March. We are assuming this is the same bill. They haven't mentioned it being anything different. But it could be that when it goes to the Dáil... ...they have amended it... ...or they are taking a particular track with it. The other thing is... ...this bill, even if it is the same bill is an amendment to the National Standards Authority of Ireland Act of 1996. So there may be provisions within that. This is not my area of expertise or an area I'm terribly familiar with. There may be areas in that that will enable people to avoid um, this sort of labelling. But as it is written in that Labour Bill, it looks pretty cut and dry. This is what they want. They want basically the A to Z of the commodity. But... It just—I don't see. There are going to be points. There are going to be industries and sectors and products that can do this very easily, and there are going to be products and companies. I don't think this is going to be
1: possible for at all. I mean, if you're if you're a chocolate maker, how are you going to get the carbon footprint from the guy in Ecuador that does your that collects your your cocoa beans and possibly manufactures your your, ba- your your base chocolate there for you then you import. The, I, no, I there you there are so many that. products Gary also. There are so many things that we buy that contain dozens and dozens and dozens of things and also have dozens of different processes involved in the production of each thing and each of those will have its own transport and logistics history. I, it just seems to me that There're going to be, there're going to be lots of things where there're going to be so many different moving parts involved that either you're going to be in a position where what, what they're actually going to do is say, listen, we're just looking for a rough number, an approximate kind of an idea, or you're going to say that if you're under a certain turnover level of turnover, or you you only turn over a five hundred thousand or a million, or you only sell within a certain Geographically, I don't know that they're, they're going to have some kind of get out clause for smaller pro, smaller producers and even for bigger producers, some kind of get out clause, which says, we don't expect you to go all the way because we understand it's going to be far too complicated. But at which point you start to, well, what exactly is the point of this? I mean, what kind of tolerances will be allowable? I mean,
0: there is one other thing I would point out about this bill. It's under carbon footprint specifications. It doesn't actually say carbon footprint, as in it doesn't reference carbon. What it references is the quantity of greenhouse gas. You would assume, because that comes under the, this bill and it's under the carbon footprint specifications, that that is carbon. But carbon is not the only greenhouse gas.
1: No, I mean, if you're using somebody, if you're somebody who's using any dairy product, you're going to have to include methane as well, because anything which involves cow's milk, you're going to have to presumably include methane that's produced by cows.
0: And greenhouse gas is an incredibly broad area. But I mean, the major ones are, you know, methane, carbon dioxide, uh, carbon, nitrous oxide stuff like that now look i don't imagine that's going to be an issue i think people will get the idea because of the section it's under but if you're gonna if you're gonna write a bill saying this needs to be happen and then you write carbon footprint specification is defined as a a description of the commodity by reference to the quantity of greenhouse gas emitted that's not what you want that's not well written and that, while it most likely won't be a problem, if enacted as written, could actually be a problem. And it's the Labour Party. So, you know. But I just, I wanted to highlight it. It's it's going through the the dial today. We'll have a look at the transcripts. We'll make sure it's the same bill. But I think the idea of getting someone to put a label on a product that references the greenhouse gases emitted in shipping that commodity to every individual point of sale is on the face of it insane
1: what am i precisely supposed to do with this information because each each product i mean am i supposed to start saying well this am i, I, I mean, to compare sandwiches that I, I should go i should seek out the least carbon footprinted sandwich maybe because each product is going to come from a different perspective, a different context of production. I mean, unless it's, unless there's some kind of, shall we say, comparative scale operating, that we can see one thing is better than another thing, I don't see that the just sort of some kind of raw piece of data regarding greenhouse gases itself is going to be particularly useful to most people. How will they understand what it means?
0: I can absolutely see why they included that. Because with let's say something like avocados or some type of fruit or commodity which is imported from South America, Africa or Asia. They wanted to catch that in it. The problem is that it's the Labour Party and they're trying to write a bill and I don't think they've fully thought through the difference between what they want to do and what they have written.
1: Also, it's the Labour Party, and I think they'd be very upset if this were to lead to the absence of avocados from our shelves.
0: It's either that, or they find out that the consumers don't care.
1: Which would be horrible.
0: There's a video, uh, Michael. I'll try and put a link to it below. I'm not sure if I'll be able to find it. It's one of my favourite moments of TV, although I don't watch a lot of TV, so maybe I've missed out a lot of stuff. And it's from Jamie Oliver's show, one of them whichever one it is and he shows children how chicken nuggets are made now he goes out of his way to make this seem as disgusting as possible and that say that they're using the bits of the animal that people wouldn't want to eat and i think you can make a good argument that that's actually very environmentally friendly and actually arguably a positive thing but he, he shows them this disgusting goo basically yes yes made of bone and connective tissue and meat and then he shows them this and he's given them all the horror stories. And then he asks, now, and that's how you, t- you could turn that into a chicken nugget. And just makes a little chicken nugget. And he says, now how many of you would still eat that? And every child says they would eat it. <laughs> and it just cuts to Jamie Oliver. And he's got this look of abject disappointment on his face. You know that moment where like, you can actually see his heart break in half? It's my favourite moment of TV, but I suspect that might be the reaction of some of the people in Labour. If people just went, "Well, we like avocados, so fuck it,"
1: I'd say avocados because I'm, I I think that if you were to break down avocado consumption along party party lines, it's my suspicion, and it's, it is, my suspicion that avocados will come out strongly in the Labour category. Crushed avocado on toast. That sounds like a. Uh, Where's the place? Very much a Smithfield cafe, Labour voter kind of a thing.
0: Yeah, let's do things because they're popular as opposed to actually being pleasant to eat. Yes.
1: I've had guacamole, which I liked, but I don't know. Maybe there's something else in guacamole that makes it pleasant.
0: That is the the Labour bill. Assuming it is still the same bill from March. We'll probably end up talking about it on Friday or Sunday. Well, Presumably Friday we'll be talking about the new restrictions, but it'll come up soon. But another thing which is coming forward tomorrow, we are going to have the Joint Committee on Justice looking at the new plans for hate speech. Yeah. Now, this is the General Scheme of the Criminal Justice Hate Crime Bill 2021. And we know a little bit of what about is going to be said tomorrow because of the times. Particularly they have got some of the uh, information about what Pave Point is going to be. I'm not sure how they got it. They may have went to Pave Point. They may have managed to get a copy of it from someone. Pave's point, uh, Pave Point's main argument, as put forward by the Times, is that any protection in the legislation is going to have to have steps taken to ensure the defences against hate speech are not overly broad. Now, Pave Point say this needs to happen because the defence of political discourse could be used by far-right groups to justify prejudice.
1: Yeah, never been far-left. Far-left wouldn't do that. But far-right. Well, it's nice to see that groups like Pave Point are showing their absolutely true blue progressive liberal credentials there, their deep concern for the freedom of speech and the rights of the, the weak and the oppressed to speak truth to power.
0: So basically they want pretty much the only part of the bill which contained any attempts to give people defences against claims of uh, engaging in hate speech gut it. They want it just gone. So if you cannot have a discussion on this because it related to political discourse. Doesn't that mean that there are certain areas which you can simply no longer discuss? Because what, would there, what reason would, would there be to discuss those areas that wouldn't be political in nature? Because there's no, there's no defence for general cultural commentary. That would have come, the defences are literary, artistic, political, scientific or academic discourse.
1: I don't think that Pavie Point and people like Pavie Point have any interest at all in the notion of defending discourse or protecting people's speech. They have have a business to run, Gary, and they don't want people interfering with that business model. And if you have people that might come along and start critiquing their business model, maybe questioning the rationality or the, the data, or the factual nature of the claims that they make, that that might reduce the broad sympathy that exists within some of the population towards the business that they're running. You know, that's a threat to their business. So why, why, why should anybody be in the least bit surprised that they want to make sure that nobody can start saying bad things about their business? I mean, listen, if, if you, if you were a chocolate manufacturer, would you not be perfectly happy that you could get introduced into the Dáil legislation which would stop people making comments about chocolate causing spotty in children, or maybe people getting fat because they ate too much chocolate, or that a large amount of chocolate in your diet wasn't good for diabetes or for heart health. If you could get that kind of stuff considered to be hate speech against chocolate, Wouldn't you do it? Wouldn't you be very happy to do it?
0: I mean, particularly if the legislation in question could give people up to five years in prison.
1: Five years in prison? Just meditate on that for a moment.
0: If you were inciting hatred, of course, Michael.
1: Yeah, and and how would we know that that was what you were doing? Would there be an objective standard by which this could be measured? Or would this ultimately be a question of perception of a person? who felt that this was what you were doing.
0: Yeah, I think we all know the answer to that one.
1: Yeah, there is no objective standards, and they have no interest in looking, even into the possibility of establishing an objective standard. It's a completely subjective notion. And what it won't do is cause a whole plethora of people to be charged under this bill. There won't be queues of people being prosecuted and sent off to Chokey for five years. For hate speech. Because that's not the point, is it? The point isn't to put get people put in prison for that, because that's actually the last thing in the world they want to happen. The point is to chill speech. Is to just calm everything down, keep everything quiet, so that people will feel nervous. Because it's not even necessarily what ends up being considered to be hate speech that will be the success of this legislation. It will be the doubt in the mind of the ordinary citizen that will be the success of this legislation. The fact is that most of what they might want to say may actually be protected speech. They might be fine saying what they were saying, they will be okay. But as long as you can create in them a doubt, a concern, possibly what I'm saying could end up landing me in trouble, you know what? It's better I should say nothing. Why draw attention to myself? why take a risk why put myself in the way of something when it's not going to achieve anything anyway and on that basis this will be a successful piece of legislation for people running that that business model presumably this legislation is going is, is principally conter- concerned with protected classes yeah it's
0: entirely concerned with protected classes so you've got your uh, race your colour your nationality your religion your ethnic or national origin Your sexual orientation, gender or disability, ethnicity is specifically called out as including membership of the traveller community. And hatred is defined as detestation, significant ill will or hostility of magnitude likely to lead to harm or unlawful discrimination against a person or group of peoples due to their association with a protected characteristic. Yeah. Of a magnitude likely to lead to harm or unlawful discrimination, likely to lead to... Eh, ill will.
1: Mm. Well, if it's unlawful discrimination, well, it's already unlawful, so why do we need any, seems a redundancy. It'll pass, Gary, it'll go through. It'll not only go through, it will be celebrated in the going through. Fine Gael will vote for it, Fianna Fáil will vote for it, Labour will vote for it would will vote for it the Greens will vote for it people before profit will vote for it ferrets before butter will vote for the socialist party everybody will vote for it uh, probably some of the the rural independents won't which will be just further proof that they are both cavemen and troglodytes and denizens of some kind of weird Irish populist far right throwback
0: and you know what Michael despite the fact every party will vote for it not a single vote will be found in it
1: Extra vote and
0: no. The next election is not going to see people climbing out of the woodwork going, Well, you know, I thought Finafal were Neanderthals, but after seeing that, I couldn't help but give you my first preference.
1: Absolutely. All those those people who had had been planning to vote for the Social Democrats or Labour or the Greens would say, Oh, you know what? It turns out we were wrong about Finafal. We thought that they were just a big, horrible bunch of ignorant bog men and chancers and builders and bad people. But now that they have been responsible for passing the hate speech laws that we think are absolutely super, we're going to vote for them. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's why I'm confident, Gary, you're going to see an increase of maybe 30 or 40% in Fianna Fáil seats in the Dublin area in the next general election. Because all of the people who are going to be convinced... By all of the wonderful liberal progressive social policies pursued by me Hallmark.
0: No, 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 no. I'll give you progressive, Michael, on that. There's nothing fucking liberal about this.
1: Okay. Actually, we have now reached a point where we don't have to say it ironically, it's just a simple fact, that liberal and progressive are actually antonyms rather than synonyms.
0: If you support, after five years' imprisonment for someone, for something they've said... You can be many things, but liberal is not up there.
1: You know, it used to be, without ploughing those fields all up again that we've previously ploughed, it used to be considered that one of the <coughs> those the things that we looked for which distinguishes modernity from premodernity is the change in the way the law looked at uh, malfeasance. That the law said, "Okay, from now on, we're not going to judge people for what they think or what they believe. We're going to punish people on the basis of what they do, because it is only really, it is only an act that we can actually judge. You know, the famous words of Queen Elizabeth, I do not have a, a window to look into men's souls. And the law took that opinion that previously, you know, people believe about religion, about the cosmos. These were things that you could prosecute. No. In the same way as as Aristotle says in the Poetics, when you're, if you're, when, don't tell me, show me. So the law would be only interested in people's acts. Now, that wasn't to say that there are not certainly limited circumstances where speech would be considered like obscenity, live publications of documents or things liable to, what was it, uh, there's a wonderful word which is escaping me now, basically to reduce the the, the morality of the public, you know, obscene publications. You couldn't libel somebody, I mean it used to be criminal libel, but over the years that passed, over the centuries, the, the, those areas where you could be in trouble with the law for things simply that you said or published became fewer and fewer and fewer. The law of crim- criminal libel disappeared. It became purely a civil case. We're now abandoning that. We're abandoning the principle that you can be prosecuted only for doing something. And returning to the other thing that you can be you can be punished for the sins of your heart. You can be punished for what those things that you mean in your heart. And that is, uh, that is we call it progressive, but that is, it doesn't feel like a very progressive thing to do. Incitement to hatred has been, or incitement to violence, certainly, and there's an important distinction there. Incitement to violence was a crime. You did something, you incited, you encouraged people to riot or to be violent, which was an action. We now said that we incite to hate is a crime. And we've become so used to this language, Gary, we don't think about it anymore. But think about what we're saying when we say that. It is a crime to incite to hate. Hatred is an emotion. You're inciting somebody to feel something. It is a crime to incite somebody to feel something. You're not prosecuting them because you incited them to go and commit acts of violence. Or to attack someone physically. Or to burn their shop or attack their house. No. You're committing a crime because you're inciting somebody to feel in a particular way. So essentially, you're criminalizing a feeling.
0: And I I remember we, the Edmund Burke Institute, put in material when this was being considered. We met with some of the high-ranking officials. We talked with them with hours. We brought in a philosopher. We brought in a legal professor. And then we were called to the NGO uh, roundup, basically Before this was publicly released, NGOs who had taken part were called in to have a look at it. And I can't detail who was on that call because of confidentiality to it. But what I can point out is that other than one presumably feminist academic who asked something about gender, no one, no one mentioned anything about defences or protections of the public. It's shameful. And there were... The NGOs you would expect to be there are pretty obvious. The human rights NGOs, the civil liberties people obviously can't confirm they were there, but you wouldn't be surprised at the list of people who were there. None of them gave a shit about the defences or the protections that the public would have under this. And whatever about whether or not you think this bill is a good or a bad thing, you would expect the people who say they represent your civil liberties and... That their purpose is to protect your civil liberties and your human rights to take a hardline stance on we might be able to give you five
1: years for something you
0: said, and they didn't didn't give a shit,
1: not a shit do they give These people are so far away from you, you remember that you primarily young Jewish lawyers who were the mainstay of mainstay of the ACLU in the United States and actively campaigned for the right of Nazis to camp to walk through the largely Jewish suburb of Skokie because while they hated them and had nothing but disgust despite for the Nazis and the Klan, they had an absolutist position on the right of speech and protest and public assembly. We are so far away from that kind of commitment to actual civil liberties in this country. And those groups who are notionally dedicated to the defence of those civil liberties are so far away from those principles. It is both laughable and cryable. It reminds
0: me of a quote from... Um, HL or Mencken and he said that the trouble with fighting for human freedom and human liberties is that you you spend all of your time defending scoundrels for it's against scoundrels that oppressive laws are first aimed and oppression must be stopped at the beginning if it's to be stopped at all and that does not seem to be a lesson that anyone in Ireland at least anyone that official Ireland gives a shit about has picked up on
1: because history only goes one direction gary
0: oh absolutely like michael if we have labour's referendum for instance and remove the protections against the state having control absolute control over the education of children that will absolutely never be used against them if let's say some sort of radical group that they disagree with comes to power it's not like they will have been preparing the ground for them accidentally in the same way that the democratic party when they got rid of the filibuster in relation to some of the judges were told by mitch mcconnell If you do this, you will regret it, and you will regret it sooner than you expect.
1: And by gum, uh, we before we close, it reminds me there was for anybody who's a a fan of Blackadder, the last series, Blackadder had been uh, he was being he'd been convicted of being the Flanders pigeon murderer was taken out and shot in the morning, and uh, his. The, the young lieutenant and Baldrick had come up with a clever plan to save him which they had not effectuated because they got blind drunk and then expected indeed the poor captain had been shot. He arrived in the trench safe and sound but very much aware that what had happened had it happened and said uh, he was going to dedicate himself to basically ensuring that uh, whatever was going to happen uh, to these two people was going, to be, was going to be hard and horrible and nasty. As he's speaking the telephone rings he picks it up and answers and he says it's Hello? Yeah, you can hear him responding to some questions. He said, Operation Certain Death. Two volunteers, you say? Oh, definitely. puts the phone down. He looks at the two boys and says, God is very quick these days. <laughs> and in these situations like this, I always think that it will, it will it, not in every case, but it will eventually happen that they will do one of these things in the absolute confident belief that history only ever goes in one direction and it, the ink will barely be dry on the document of the instrument and god will be very quick and the and I, I hope i hope that the lord gives me the years to be around to see the look of complete astonishment and bewilderment on their faces when they as they say but no 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 but that the law wasn't meant for us. It was meant for bad people. Not for people like us.
0: And a gentle hand will come to rest on their shoulder. <laughs> and a voice will say, Ah, but you see, now you are the bad people.
1: Which of course never occurs. It never occurs. Anyway, we shall be back. On Friday and then Sunday. Unless of course we have broken some laws and have been hauled off to my joy to rethink ourselves and... To Get ourselves sorted out and to a proper way. But assuming that we haven't been taken away, she'll be back on Friday for more scurrilous talk and jeering and sneering. Until then, bye bye. All the best.